Well, a young bank manager wanted to do a really good job, and so he sat down with, the, with his uh, successor, um, with the, actually the guy he was taking over for, who was really good at making very wise decisions. He was revered among the, the, the financial industry as, as giving really good advice. He could read the markets and he could, he could figure out what to do. So this young guy who's very inexperienced says, how do you make good decisions? Or, or, or what's the secret? And the older bank manager replied, well, you just have to make good decisions. Well, how do you learn how to make good decisions? The older bank manager looked at him and said, bad decisions. <laughs> Imagine you're in a position where you are suddenly responsible for everything that happens for hundreds of thousands of people. You are young, inexperienced, and a lot of other people assume they should have your job, or at least they want to tell you how to do your job. Your dad was an impressive leader and brought people through very difficult times, and he's now handed the reins off to you. And I'm not talking about current government. He's given you a task, and there's some key things that he couldn't get done in his lifetime. He's handing it over to you. Expectations are high. Everybody's watching. Everybody's waiting. Welcome to day one of being Solomon in the kingdom of Israel. What are you going to do? You have to follow in the footsteps of David. None of us have that level of responsibility of leadership. Well, at least I don't think so. But we all face decisions that impact our families, our friends, and our community, and our decisions have consequences. How do we make decisions that are good? How do we know what to do in, in a circumstance when faced with a tough decision? Solomon's in a position where he needs to just call out to God and meet God. And that's what he does. We're going to be in the book of 1 Kings for the next little while. Uh, this month we're looking at the life of Solomon. And, and just to kind of give us a bit of a big picture of what Kings is about, you, you could put these bookends on it. King David dies, and then the kingdom dies. That's the overarching thing. Kings is one book. Uh, it gets broken up into first and second kings because scrolls could only be so long. But it's written as one story, and it has a beginning and it has an ending. The beginning is David dies, and the ending is the kingdom dies, and people are in exile. And where is there going to be hope? And that's the overarching storyline. Kings is written to exiles in Babylon to explain the exile. How did we get here? This is kind of the big picture zoom out of kings. And to give them hope. Interestingly, in the Hebrew Bible, kings concludes what's called the former prophet, Joshua, Joshua to the end of kings. And then the very next book is Isaiah. And keep that in mind because it's an interesting uh, transition. It's not just, okay, you know, in our Bibles we have King's Chronicles and it's like, well, you had like, here's one perspective on Israel's history and now here's another. And we tend to call them historical books. The Hebrew Bible sees these as prophetic books. 
and Kings leads right into Isaiah. And if you read it that way, the way the Jewish people have been reading it for centuries, there's something more to Kings than just historical information. There's an explanation of the pain and the trauma of the past destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the present exile in Babylon, and there is hope for the future because God's purposes in his kingdom are gonna continue even though people are in exile and the temple is destroyed and they're outside of the land yet once again. Together, both Kings and Isaiah point us to God's gracious sovereignty over history, his absolute faithfulness to his covenants with Abraham and David. And together, both point us to the reality that God is faithful to bless and to curse, but he is also faithful to restore. Together, both Kings and Isaiah challenge us the way that David challenges Solomon and really the only discussion I think we have between David and Solomon in Scripture. As father and son, here's, here's the one thing. Let's uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 2. We'll start with the first four verses. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded his son Solomon, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as written in the law of Moses. That you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David commands Solomon here to walk in God's ways, to follow the instructions of Moses, a life of obedience toward God with a singular devotion of love for the Lord and to walk in his ways. And this is a central theme of the book of Kings. This is the, the litmus test as to whether a king is good or not. In, in the book of Kings, you, you'll, you'll get the name of the king, sometimes his mother, the length of his reign, and then... The, the author of Kings says, and he did good in the eyes of the Lord or he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And there's always an evaluation of every king's reign. God's covenant with David, listen to that, was conditional. If, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, they shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel, verse four. Well, how do you do that? As, as a leader, as a king, how do you do that? What's one of the instructions? If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 to 20, God there made provision for the kingdom of Israel. And it says this, and when he sits on the throne, the king, whom the people set up, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God 
by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. You know, the unfortunate thing is that we don't have any record of ever, any king ever doing that. There's no, so Solomon went to the temple and got the scroll of Deuteronomy and wrote out for himself in his own handwriting a copy. I mean, this is what, this is what the king's supposed to do. He's supposed to go to the Levitical priests with a blank scroll and a quill and a lot of ink and at least write out the book of Deuteronomy. That's probably what it means by this law in the book of Deuteronomy. It's, it's this specific text, but the whole thing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like if we insisted that our leaders write out by hand their own personal copy of the Bible? Like that's a qualification for leadership. Get your pen out, get a stack of paper, start writing in your own handwriting. I, I know uh, Peter Brown here does this. He's been writing out books of the Bible in his own handwriting. And Peter's said, it's, it's just an amazing thing. There's things that you, you absorb that you don't otherwise, right? Things you notice that you normally just wouldn't, you just, because we just read through, we read way faster than we can write. But to write it out for yourself, there's a connection. There's actually, we could probably go into brain chemistry on that one. Could you imagine what it would be like? What are the results that, that Deuteronomy is envisioning here? Three, three things come out here. First of all, wisdom. That, uh, what, where is that word? That he may fear the Lord in keeping all the words of this law. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that the king would then be a man filled with wisdom. To fear the Lord is to live it out daily, every day in life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping, guarding, preserving all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Remember the, the uh, end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says uh, the, the wise man builds his house on the rock. Well, what is, what is that metaphor? He's like, anyone who hears my words and puts them into practice, does them, is like a man who built his house on the rock. Anyone who hears my words and doesn't put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the sand. So the issue isn't whether or not you hear the Bible or read the Bible. The issue is whether you do it, whether you live it. Wisdom is living it out in daily life. Result number one, wisdom. Result number two, humility. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's and he doesn't think that, hey, I'm the king, I rule, I make the rules, I have absolute authority here, you have to do what I want. He's to write out the word of the Lord so that he is led to deeper humility and servant's heart. Wisdom and a servant's heart. And the third thing, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, a life of integrity. A 
a life of consistency. This is what the word of God is supposed to do for our lives, provide us with wisdom in daily living, humility and integrity. This was what was to characterize the king who writes for himself a copy of the law and read it every day. So what are your goals in daily devotions and Bible reading? What are, what are your real goals? What's your why? What does studying the Bible do for you? It should deepen your understanding and love for God and humility before others. We should be able to look back on our life over the last year or two years and ask ourselves, what was out of step with God's purposes? And where's my thinking been changed? How am I orienting myself toward others in humility more and in service? And how am I growing in these areas? These are the three characteristics of a good leader. Wisdom and the fear of the Lord. Humility and integrity. Well, that's where Solomon's supposed to start. And so he's given this command, this um, covenant charge, keep, keep in the word of God. Keep in the word of God and love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Flip over to 1 Kings chapter 3. We'll skip the rest of chapter 2 because all that is is a list of all the people that Solomon's supposed to kill. Kind of awkward. Okay, like, obey the Lord, four verses, and then the rest of the chapter is like, and kill this guy, and kill this guy, and kill this guy, and kill this guy. Um, yeah, we'll tackle that another day. Solomon's prayer for wisdom, a gracious offer is made to the king. Let's just read, we'll read this passage and then we'll, we'll, we'll break it down into some parts. Starting in verse one, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go, in or come, uh, go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? 
It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life, riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So God hands David a blank check, or Solomon a blank check, basically. What do you want? But first, let's look back at the first three verses just for a moment. I think these are important. <clears throat> Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So that's the first thing. <laughs> that tidbit should raise a bit of a red flag. This means he had a political alliance with Egypt, which he wasn't supposed to do if we go back to even the Deuteronomy 17 passage. <clears throat> Second, this first tidbit creates a literary, what's called an inclusio, with chapter 11, verse 1, where Pharaoh's daughter is mentioned again alongside a list of many other wives from other nations that Solomon married into, with the narrator saying that all of them are going to lead Solomon astray, have led Solomon astray into idolatry. And all of these are with nations forbidden for Israel to intermarry with. The number of wives really has less to do with Solomon's passion and more to do with his politics. These are like peace treaties. This is how people in the ancient world finished up a peace treaty. Okay, we've got a treaty, we've got an agreement with one another, here's my daughter. And we'll exchange daughters, and that means we're family, and you don't go against family. So it was creating family ties with these other nations. So again, Solomon starts in this, and this continues. Because what happens is that Solomon, to keep everyone happy, allows them to set up shrines to their own tribal gods throughout Israel. And so while it seems like Solomon begins well, there is the seed of the downhill slide already in the text. Now, if you read Chronicles, it doesn't happen that way at all. Solomon's awesome all the way through, just like David. Bathsheba doesn't exist in Chronicles. Most of these marriages don't really exist until a little later. It's a little bit of a cleaned up history. Different purpose, different, different time of writing too. Third, we get a brief overview of what's coming. Solomon is the great builder. He's got projects around Jerusalem, the walls, the city, his own house, and most importantly, the temple. And the note that it has not yet been built, so there's no centralized place of worship. People are worshiping wherever. And under the law, this was still allowed, but it was becoming very problematic. The next thing in these first opening verses, Solomon goes to this high place, this chief high place in Gibeon to worship, and we're not told why. 
And I don't think Solomon was expecting what happened at Gibeon that night in his dream. We do know from 2 Samuel 6 that David brought the Ark to Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant chest, which would have been smaller than this, in a small tent that he made for it. But the tabernacle and the altar for sacrifices were at Gibeon. Uh, 2 Chronicles 1, 3 to 5 tells us that. So interestingly, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were at this time separated. And then the text hints at what will be made explicit in chapter 11. Solomon has a divided heart. Look at verse three again. Solomon loved the Lord, loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of his father David only, but yet, and the Hebrew little connecting word here is to show a contrast between two things. So he loved the Lord, but he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So right off the bat, the author's telling us, Solomon has a divided heart. And then picking it up after, uh, from verse five. So, so, so all of this in the background, all of this is in the background, all of this, the, the narrator has given us kind of as a foundation uh, to, 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 to read what's coming next. He went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. It was a great high place. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, what do you want? Isn't that amazing? Think about this for a moment. The author has just told us that Solomon's political alliance and divided heart. And God still appears to him. God still makes this gracious offer God knows that Solomon will continue to live out of a divided love and will fail as a faithful king. And yet he still comes to him. He says, what do you want? God doesn't wait for us to have it all together in our lives. We never will. He meets us in our brokenness, fully aware of how much more broken we will become. He offers us his wisdom when he knows how foolish we will choose to live. And he offers us his extravagant love, knowing full well how far we will stray from his care. If you fell asleep tonight and had a dream in which God spoke to you directly and made you this offer, ask what I shall give you. How would you respond? I mean, how open-ended is that? God's basically saying, what do you want from me? What can I do for you? And consider the source, the creator of the universe is handing you a blank check that he's already signed. What are you gonna do with it? Listen again to Solomon's response. It's so beautiful and humble and already evidences the wisdom that he seeks. You have shown great and steadfast love, covenant, loyal faithfulness to your servant David, my father, because he walked with you in faithfulness and righteousness, uprightness of heart toward you, and you have kept for him this great steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. You, you've already followed through on your covenant promises to my father. 
And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David, my father, though I'm but a little child. And we don't know how old he was at the time here. I do not know how to go in or come out. It's, it's like, I, I, I'm not sure what to do. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too many to be numbered or counted for a multitude. So give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that, you may, that he may discern, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. <clears throat> Solomon is talking to God that he is my God. Not David's God, not dad's God, my God. And, and you've made me king over who? Not my people, but your people, Lord. They're not mine, and, and I am your servant. He places himself under the authority and the sovereignty of God to serve the people. He knows the task is too big for him. The people are too great a number. The expectations are just crushing. So Solomon fills out that blank check with two words, Lev Shomea. And we've translated it in understanding mind, but literally it means a listening heart. A listening heart. Give me a heart that listens. In Hebrew thought, the heart is the mind, the will, the emotions. It's more than intellect. It's more than just thinking right. It's feeling right. It is the center of everything. Give me a listening heart. It's the same word as as the, the good Jewish people say every day, Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Give me a heart that listens. Give me a heart that listens. An understanding mind and a listening heart, perception of truth and an openness to receive. Solomon's onto something here. Leadership is about listening and discerning the right thing to do in a situation. It is... It is open to change, not closed. It is self-giving, not self-protective. It is not self-promoting. It is servant heart. Give me a heart that listens. Because being closed to change, self-protective and self-promoting doesn't come from a listening, open heart. That's closed. A listening heart stems from a heart open to hearing from God and from others and a heart that is humble and open to correction. In short, everything that Deuteronomy 17 expects of the king who writes out his own copy of the law, humility and the fear of the Lord and integrity comes from having an open listening heart. And this is what Solomon asks for. And this is what God gives him. God hands him a blank check. And Solomon says, I just need an open heart. And this pleases God. Listen again to God's response. It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this for, for a, a listening heart. God said to him, because you've asked for this, for a listening heart and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding 
or, or hearing to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I now give you a wise and discerning mind or a listening heart so that no one will be like you before or after. And I'm going to give you everything else besides. In a very real way, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, why do you worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow's going to worry about itself. Why do you worry about food, what you'll eat? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor store away in bargains that your heavenly Father feeds them. Why do you worry about your clothes? Look at the lilies of the field. Not even Solomon in all his splendor, there's the Solomon connection, was dressed like one of these. Yet this is how God clothes the grass of the field. Don't you think he's going to take care of you? Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all this will be added to you as well. Solomon pursued wisdom to lead others well, not to build his own power or his own wealth or his own life. He was concerned about making good and helpful decisions for God's people whom he was called to lead, and that's the posture that pleases the Lord. Solomon's wisdom made him famous, and he is still famous to this day. Solomon's wisdom will allow Israel to prosper, and everything he did not ask for will be his as well. God provides Solomon wisdom to lead well. He becomes fully equipped for the task. And yet, as we have seen with Saul and with David, he will fail. He will not continue to walk in God's ways consistently. See, David, the pursuer of God's heart, man after God's own heart, we know he failed. And Solomon, the possessor of God's wisdom, will fail. Every human character that we've come across from Adam and Eve all the way through in relationship with God comes to a place of failure. Our story is their stories. Yet God promised David's line would never end and an eternal kingdom and a throne would come from him. And during the exile to whom this text was written, Israel will place all their hope on this, that one day a king will come from David's line who will not only restore the kingdom of Israel, but will grant them a new heart. I think it's Ezekiel 33. A heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, a heart that listens. That one day a king would come from David's line who will not only restore the kingdom of Israel, but be the one through whom all the nations will come to worship the one true Lord and the God of Israel. And the New Testament starts out with the lineage of Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, the anointed one. And an angel tells Joseph in a dream that this child, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. He will restore them out of exile, even though they're under Roman oppression. And he will be called Emmanuel, God with us, the very presence and person of God in us. Born in Bethlehem to shepherd the people of Israel, leading and guiding them to God's eternal and abundant pasture and kingdom. <clears throat> David, the pursuer of God's heart, fails, but the son of David pursues God's own heart and does not fail. 
Solomon, the possessor of God's wisdom, fails, but the son of David would possess God's wisdom and never fail. Second, or, or Colossians chapter 2, 3, Paul declares that in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. It's in Christ that wisdom dwells. In Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays that we would be granted the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. A spirit of wisdom so that we would know him better. See, when it comes right down to it, God's wisdom doesn't help us to live well. It leads us to himself. As, as Solomon starts well here, he starts in a posture of surrender to God. He started well. He started from the right place. Because he knew that God had to provide this. Nothing else could. Where do you need the wisdom from God in your life right now? I know some of us have hard decisions to make in life in the next while. How are you going to choose? What decisions do you have to face? How are you going to choose in line with God's purposes? James 1.5 tells us to simply ask like Solomon. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. You know, to, to, to put it really simply, if you don't know what to do, ask God. He's not going to go, what are you thinking? <laughs> You've come to the right place if you're coming to God. But finding God's wisdom is never easy. It requires surrender. Solomon's dream conversation with God is a prayer conversation. Solomon acknowledges he needs God's wisdom and work in his life to have an open and listening heart and an understanding mind, and that doesn't just happen. God needs to work, and we need to surrender. John Roscoe comment, uh, commenting on this says this, what Solomon longs for is wisdom to serve God's people. It is understanding by a wisdom that is fed by God as the source of wisdom, his word, his will, his way. A believer can study scripture through on prayer, and this is the key that keeps coming back to unlock the right door. Prayer at its essence, as God desires it, is a submission to do his will. Think about that. Prayer at its essence, as God desired it, is submission to do his will. That may upend it for some of us because we think the prayer is getting God to do what we want. God, can you do this for me? God, can you do that for me? God, can you bring this about? God, can you? God, can you? God, can you? And what prayer really is is, Lord, I'm going to submit to your will. And I will do what you call me to. Prayer at its essence as God desires, it is a submission to do his will. Therefore, if we pray for God to grant us wisdom, we are also praying for him to give us obedient hearts. God will not grant us his wisdom if we are not willing to listen and do. To seek wisdom is to seek action directed by God and submissive to his will.
So we all have decisions to make that will impact our families, our friends, our communities, and our decisions have consequences. How do we make good decisions? How do we know what to do in the circumstances we're facing? Where do you need wisdom from God in your life right now? Some of us have hard decisions to make. How are we going to make those decisions? Ask God. Prayer at its essence is submission to do his will. And prayer as Solomon prayed it is therefore give me an understanding mind. Give me a listening heart. That's what we need. Lord, thank you for this real simple thing and yet so hard. Because our natural inclination is to wrestle control of our lives for ourselves and to to assume we know better and to assume that we know the right way to go in any situation. Lord, in many, many ways, we're arrogant and self-centered. Give us a listening heart. Lord, as, as Solomon prayed, this one simple request that would open the door for everything, and, and yet he was closed in some ways and chose not to follow your word and your will and your way. Lord, at least he started there. We all will mess things up. We'll all wrestle control for our lives back from you over and over again. So Lord, give us a listening heart. Put, put ears on our hearts so that we can hear your voice, hear your word, hear your spirit speaking to us as we're facing whatever decisions we need to make. Lord, give us listening hearts. And Lord, as the book of Kings ends in really kind of a bad note, and sometimes the choices we make lead us to exile and a time of pain but there's hope because you are the God who restores, who rebuilds, and eventually sends the Messiah to say this temple that you're so caught up in, I'll rebuild it in three days. And you gave yourself so that we could have hearts that listen. Lord, may your Spirit's presence in us every day give us listening hearts. And Father, from that, may we live obedient lives. Thank you for the fact that even though you come to us in our brokenness and you know that we're going to break even more, you still come to us. That while Solomon was given all this wisdom and he abused it, we'll do the same thing with your grace. Well, we'll turn to our own ways. But you've laid on Jesus all of our iniquity, all of our sin, all of our wandering, all of our brokenness. And only in you do we find healing and restoration and wholeness. 
And so, Lord, whatever people are facing today and the decisions they're needing to make, may you give them listening hearts, knowing that you, you are the one who is guiding and directing. Lord, we don't know. Some of the journeys are really tough. And we have questions. But our hope is in you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen.